Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God. And his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, we're blessed to be here tonight and to know that you are in our presence to worship you, to, to, focus, uh, to focus everything that there is about us, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Father, in, in dedicating ourselves to you so completely that we invite You to come into every part of our life. We, we pray, Father, to, to be a people not just sanctified in, in the portions where we, we open ourselves up to You, but we pray, Father, that even at, at great and terrible cost, that we open all of our life up to You, to be sanctified by Your Spirit, to, to be humbled where there are inklings of, of pride, to, to be... To be encouraged, Father, where there are the, the, the tiniest of buds ready to blossom into holiness. And, and to, Father, feel the closeness of your presence, Father, even in those moments where we're tempted to believe that you are aloof and we are alone. We pray, Father, to always remember that you are near. And that you love, 
and that You sacrifice and that You discipline us as a father disciplines his children. And so as we come to these words tonight, Father, we come to them with, with, with hunger and with thirst to know and to believe and to grow and to have our faith increased in such a way, Father, that we find, we find ourselves with, with more courage and, and with more stamina for the long race ahead of us. To this end, we pray that You give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to start again with a statement that we've been starting all of these sermons over every book of the Bible, which we're doing in 2014, uh, with a statement that goes like this. The Bible is not a collection of random stories. The Bible is not a collection of random stories, but it's one story about God, about man, about what went wrong and what God is doing to put it back together again. And if you look down at the left corner of your outline, you're going to find a list of words on that handout. And each of these sermons that we're going to do this year, we're going to do this as best we can, we're going to have one word so that we can tie all these words together and connect the dots and be able to tell the story at the end of the year with, with, with not just wonder, but, but with power and with conviction. And we started with God. The Bible is about God. In the beginning, God, which led us to creation. God is a creating God and creates everything that we know that there is and experience and touch and have a tactile relationship with. But it didn't stay very good for very long, even though God pronounced it as told that it was very good. The creating of the man and the woman, putting them in the garden with all of the creatures and, and all of the world. There is a fall when, when the serpent comes and tempts the woman and she gives the forbidden fruit to not only to herself but to her husband. Sin enters into the world. And that sin uh, spreads not just to uh, Adam and Eve and causes them to be uh, tossed out of the Garden of Eden, but also spreads to their children, Cain and Abel. And Cain kills Abel. And you know the rest of the story. We get to Genesis chapter 12, and everything is just going to pieces. And then God calls a man by the name of Abraham and promises to bless him. And Abraham becomes the father of the faith. It is one of his sons, uh, uh, Jacob, has his name changed to Israel. It is his sons that become the 12 tribes of, of Israel. They end up in Egypt. You know the story as we get into the book of Exodus now that there is an exodus out of Egypt by Moses. Moses takes him to Mount Sinai beginning in chapter 19 of Exodus. And there for about 9 to 12 months they are, they are there being formed into a nation and the people of God. And they are given the Decalogue or the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. And then we get to the book of Leviticus which is about how do you live as an unholy people with a holy God. You'll remember that in Exodus, while Moses is up on the mountain and he's receiving those ten words, the people go to Aaron and they say, you know, this guy Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. He's been up there and we need a God to follow. And they make the golden calf. And as, as Moses comes down, he breaks those ten commandments. He grinds that golden calf up into dust and makes the, the children of Israel to drink it. And there is this, this tension at the end of Leviticus, or excuse me, Exodus, on how do holy a holy God live with an unholy people. And we talked about Leviticus and the need for a, a life of holiness, which brings us now to numbers as the people continue on their way towards the promised land. And they do not go into that promised land, but they grumble against God and there is a lack of faith and they waver in their steadfastness to His will and to His word and to their trust in His presence. And what we find is the people are going to wander around for 40 years. And so now we come to the end of Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. 
and the second attempt to enter the land and to possess it. And at the same time, we come to the last book of Torah, or the Pentateuch, the five scrolls, or the, the, the five books of Moses, and that book is Deuteronomy. Now, the name, the name is a bit of a mystery. Uh, the English name actually comes from Deuteronomy chapter 17. And, and what is sort of ironic about this is that in, in Hebrew, the, the, the books of Moses are always named after the, the first word of the text. So in Hebrew, Genesis is not called Genesis, it's called Bereshit. Uh, uh, Leviticus is Vayikra, and he said. Uh, 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 Deuteronomy begins with Elei Hat Devarim, and these are the words, or these are the words, is how it is in Hebrew. But in English, it comes to us as Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18, is where this name comes from. Moses says, when he takes the throne, talking about the king, takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, a copy of this law taken uh, from that of the Levitical priests. Now, in the Greek, in the Septuagint copy of Deuteronomy, the words, a copy of this law, is the word deuteronomion, which literally means second law, but it doesn't mean a, a, a second giving of the law, but it really is about the king renewing and reinforcing the word of God in his earthly reign. It is to be as, as like, a, a, like second nature to him. Now, commentators like to play with the book of Deuteronomy. They, they have figured out all kinds of ways of organizing the thought of Deuteronomy. Uh, one commentator, very interesting, and, and I think that there's something to be said about this. You take the core of Deuteronomy, which is chapters 12 through 26, and what you find is the, those chapters, the core of Deuteronomy, being organized around the Ten Commandments. Uh, there's a, another vein of thought among the commentators that says the way that you think about uh, Deuteronomy and the way that it has been organized is to think about an ancient covenant or an ancient covenantal form of writing, which is about preamble, historical prologue, general stipulations, detailed stipulations, blessings and cursings, and then the, 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 the witnesses. And they see in the way that Deuteronomy was written by Moses sort of this ancient covenantal form of writing. For me, the simplest way is always the best way. The simplest way to see it, I think, is as three sermons, basically, by Moses to the people prior to their attempting to enter the land again. In chapter 1 through about the middle of chapter 4, you have this historical review and this exhortation by Moses to stay faithful. From chapter 4 to chapter, uh, towards the end of chapter 28, you have encouragements by Moses to stay loyal to God. You have Moses reminding the people of what the law of God says. Uh, you have this, this covenant renewal and you have all of the blessings and all of the cursings of, of how that covenant is to be lived out among the people. And then beginning in chapter 29 and basically going about a chapter and a half or so, you have this concluding challenge. To me, it's basically three sermons. And I also see in the book of Deuteronomy a very, very key word. It's one of the themes of the entire book of Deuteronomy, and it is the word remember. You are to remember. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when He said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words. And then in chapter 5 and verse 15, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And then Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 18, But do not be afraid of them. Remember well. Not just remember, but remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. 
Now, you get the picture. It's about remembering. Sixteen times the Word shows up. Remember, remember. Moses is telling the people, you need to be reminded. You need to remember. Remember what God did. Remember how God came to your rescue. Remember how God took care of you. Now, there's a reason that this word remember takes such an important part of of Deuteronomy. And it is this. Deuteronomy is a book on the boundary. Deuteronomy is a book on the boundary. Israel has a mission. And that is to represent God and and to cross over into the promised land and, and to be a witness and a light to all of the world in order to be a blessing to it. Now, when you think about mission... Even taking it out of a biblical context, stepping out of the Bible for a minute, and and you talk about any kind of mission that that somebody, a human being, might get involved in, a mission by definition means that you're going to cross some kind of a boundary or some kind of a border. Now when you go back into the Old Testament, what you find is that there's all kinds of missions, and the Old Testament is just full of challenges to faith and obedience that involve crossing a border. Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, is challenged by God to cross the border of his homeland to go to a land that God would show him. Will he do it or not? God has called him out of Ur of uh, the Chaldees. Will he cross the border and, and fulfill the mission that God has given him? And then you have Jacob and his family crossing the border into Egypt in order to preserve the family during a famine at the end of Genesis. And then you have Israel crossing the Red Sea from slavery to freedom as God's chosen people. And now the people are on the boundary. They are on the border again, ready to cross into the promised land. Now there is a, there, there's tremendous irony here that, that should never be lost on us as we read Deuteronomy. Israel now faces the challenge of an idolatrous and polytheistic culture. You know, they are going into a land that has this, this complete pantheon of Canaanite gods that explain the, the different seasons and explain the different moods that the world seems to find itself in. And they're going to find not only uh, the, this, this, this Canaanite pantheon of gods, polytheistic, but it's going to be incredibly idolatrous in the sense of, of places to worship these gods wherever they go. Are they going to be faithful to this one God? So that there is the challenge of an idolatrous and polytheistic culture that in spite of the initial hostility to it, what happens? It proves enormously enticing and seductive. They go into this land full of the knowledge of God. And, and there is this initial hostility in, uh, towards all of the idolatry and all of the, the polytheism that is found in, in the land. But the irony is, is that initial hostility begins to diminish and begins to wane and they begin to be enticed and seduced away from Yahweh to all of these other Canaanite gods. And so the question is, will they remain loyal to God? As they get ready to cross the boundary. Are they going to be loyal to God? Will they remain distinctive? Will they, will they adhere the words of Leviticus and, and remain distinctive, a holy people that reflects the presence and the will of Yahweh? You know, to, to me it's incredibly curious that when Jesus crossed His own personal Jordan and, and left the obscurity of a carpenter from a small Messianic community called Nazareth 
and went into his public ministry that he faced the initial temptations to faith and obedience to God's kingdom in that wilderness, face to face with Satan from the book of Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Again from Deuteronomy 6, you worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Deuteronomy is an incredibly important book that calls God's people as they stand on the boundary to face the challenges of the world around them to do so in full faith and reliance on the presence and the Word and the power and the faithfulness of God. And now once again, Israel is on the boundary. And Moses has been leading these people for a lot of years. And, and he has seen them come and he has seen them go. And after 40 years, they are, they are there on that, that, that edge of, of, of Moab. And, and Moses is concerned. And rightly concerned. He's not going to be going into the land with them. In chapter 4, he says three times, I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to be able to go with you. God has said, I will not cross over into the land. He emphasizes it in those, those three verses in chapter 4, that he is not going to go with them. And so he uses these three sermons to remind them to remember, to remember what God has done. And to remember God's law, and to remember God's covenant, and to remember the blessings and the cursings but more than anything else, to remember God. And at the core of that is the Shema. Shema Yitzrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Achad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. These words form... The essence, the core confessional text of Judaism. And these are the words that are going to keep Israel's focus true. It's not, the call is not to know about God, but to know Him. And there are four components to it. As they go into the land, and they're called to know this God that is one, they are to believe, component number one, to believe Singularly, verse 4, God is one. God is one. The point of the Shema is not to believe only in one God, monotheism versus polytheism, as it is a call to believe and to know intimately the only true God of the universe. Now again, think of the context, the Canaanite pantheon of gods. Everywhere there were lots of gods. There were gods spread out through the land. You couldn't swing... A, a dead skunk without hitting an idol of some sort. And when you think about it, it's not so far, far removed from our own day. I mean, the same is true today. The dominant belief in our culture is that everyone has the right to choose their own God. To choose their own God. To choose the God that in, in some way makes you feel good or, or, or makes you feel uh, at least satisfied with some explanation about life. And in Deuteronomy, Moses says, and God says, no. God says, I construct you. You do not construct me. There 
are not many of me depending on you, but there are a lot of you depending on me. That is what God says. And God insists that He is the singular Creator God of the universe of which there is no equal. And so, you know, that's not being so narrow-minded when you think about it because there is only one Mark Absher. There's only one Ben Bailey. There's only one Jim Overby. I mean, suppose one day this author uh, approaches you and says, I would like to write a book on your life. And you say, okay, and what angle are you going to take? And he says, you know, I'd like to write about you as a country and western singer who gets into fights all the time and is in terrible, uh, has a terrible time in relationships, just really terrible in all kinds of relationships. And you say, well, you know, I, kinda, I, I like a little Willie Nelson, but I've never been in a fist fight in my life and I've been happily married for 35 years. That's not me you're writing about. And the writer says, stop being so narrow-minded. This is the way I want you to be. What Deuteronomy is trying to help us to understand is that the God our heart desperately needs is the God we do not create. And right there at the very beginning, God is saying to His people, love the Lord who is one. Because at some point, you're going to be scared to death. And a God of your own creation is not going to have the moxie to say to you, be strong and courageous. Or at some point you're going to be feeling worthless. And how can a God that you created convince you that you're wrong and that you are worth dying for? Or maybe you're smothering in guilt. And who hasn't been there? How does a God of your own creation convince you that you really are forgiven? The call is to believe the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Component number two is to love profoundly. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You know, it's very popular, and I don't disagree with it uh, completely, but it's very popular in our, our culture to say that love is this tremendous feeling. And it is. It's more than that. It, it is, it's a feeling, but it's not merely a feeling. And it, it's, not a, it, it's not... When we talk about love as a feeling, it's not the kind of love that a creature should have for the Creator. If that was true, that love is only a feeling, then you will only love God with one part of yourself. The feelings. Can you imagine a a, a wife saying to her husband, I love you, and by that, I mean that I only love you with my feelings. Which means I really love you, but I'm not going to take care of these kids. I'm not going to clean the house. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go to work. I'm not going to support you. I'm not going to encourage you. I'm not going to, I don't want to have any conversation. But I do love you with, with at least my heart. Or a husband that says uh, to his wife, I only love you with my body. Everything else I keep for myself. The command is to love God 
with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And in verses 6 through 9, he says, Put the decrees on your heart and teach them to your children and talk about them in your house. And talk about them when you rise, when, when, you, when you walk in the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, or when you, uh, you, you, know, you see them as a sign on your hand, or frontals on your forehead, or write them on the doorpost, which in Hebrew is al-mitzvah-ot, um, which is, if you've ever gone into a, 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 a Jewish friend's house, you will see on the right side of the doorpost a little, uh, a little metal plate sometimes, or a little tube. With, uh, with the Shema in it, the, or the Ten Commandments in it. And on the top it says in Hebrew, Shema. That's where that comes from. But on your doorpost and on your gate. In other words, you have the decrees of God. The, the, the decrees of God have a place in your private life. The, the decrees of God are supposed to be in your heart and in your mind, your thought life. And not only there is to be in your public life, to say that, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian and that's my worldview and I, I keep it sort of myself is, is not to understand the book of Deuteronomy or the Bible at all in which you are a person that has called every part of you into the kingdom of God and you become His. And there's a private part of it and a public part of it. And there's a home life and a work life. And when you're awake and when you're asleep, every inch of your life is to be affected by God. Because the reason is this. If, if God is only attractive to you in your mind, your thought life, you love to read theology and you love, you love to memorize Scripture and it's, 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 it's one, you, love, you love to read about the Bible, but worship is not all that important to you. It's just a head game. It's just, it's just, it's just a head relationship with God. Where is Satan going to attack you? Right through the affections of your heart. Every inch of your life is to be affected by God. And as they were going into this land, that's, they were going to be assaulted spiritually, theologically, emotionally, in every area of the human life. To give up God. To go the easy route. To trust themselves. To do what seems best rather than to trust unwaveringly the steadfast Word of God. Which leads to a third component, which is to trust completely. And that's where in, in verse 16 of the text that Steve read for us, it's do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Which goes back to Exodus chapter 17. And the issue is that deep down, Israel is following God as long as God proves Himself as a God that I want to follow. In other words, it's guilty until proven kind of a proposition. That God, I don't believe you're worthy to follow just in and of yourself. I'm only going to follow you as you show yourself to be worthy. As you prove yourself to be worthy. I'll follow you as long as my life goes the direction that I think it should go. Or I get the explanation I think I need. Or until you prove yourself worthy, I'm not going to follow. And then you get into the wilderness and you wonder where God is. Elizabeth Elliot uh, 
in a radio interview was, was talking one time about being in uh, northern Wales watching a shepherd and his dog run their herd through a taint of, of antiseptic. You know, they were, they were dipping the sheep in order to kill the parasites. And the reason they did that, as we do all over the world, and anybody that uh, has domestic stock, uh, the animals are going to die of pestilence. They're going to be eaten from the inside out and from the outside in unless they are tended to in this way. And the, the shepherd would grab the sheep as they're running them through. And, you know, the sheep do not want to go into this black, liquid, antiseptic. You know, it, it's, it, it smells terrible. And sheep are not that smart, but they know what they, you know, what they don't like. And so they try to get out. And what does the shepherd do? The shepherd grabs them by the ears and, or the horns if they're around and pushes them back down. And sometimes even drives them down into that stinking liquid eyes and nose and ears for a couple of set, uh, seconds before letting them up. And if they try to get out, then the dog is barking at them and snarling and, see, and pushing them back into that liquid. And finally, when they're able to, 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 to be let up out of that, that, that antiseptic, you can kind of see over the metal ra- railing, you know, the eyes and the ears and the nose of that sheep. And you know what they're thinking. Why is God trying to kill me? And when she saw that, it occurred to her, that she had had some of the same thoughts while she herself was in the valley of life, not least of which when her husband was killed by Quiche Indians in Ecuador in the late 1950s, along with several other missionaries that they were very close to. The, the question is this. How do you know God is doing the best for you when you're really a sheep? How do you know that? You know what it boils down to? You trust or you die. Which leads to the last thing. And we're done. You tell the story. You tell the story. You believe singularly. You love profoundly. You trust completely. And you tell the story. You ever have a conversation that went like this with one of your kids? Maybe one of your teenage, 14-year-old kids, and you're talking about religion, and the kid says, you know, I see you going to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night. I see you going to church on Wednesday nights. I see you living a Christian life. We pray before we eat. I see you reading the Bible. But why should I? Why should I do that? Now, you could go to straight, straight to verse 24, which Steve did not read. He only went to 23. Verse 24 says, the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. Now, you, you might start there, but you can't stay there, right? It won't completely satisfy. And I think that that's why we have verses 20, 21, 22, and 23. In the future, when your son asks, What is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household, but He brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land He promised on oath to our ancestors. 
you remember. You remember something that happened in the past. And you tell that story. This, this Exodus story was, in a manner of speaking, in a sense, the gospel for the Jewish people. In a sense. God came into history to save them by grace. And those ten plagues were a giant judgment on human evil. And how was Israel to escape that? How did Israel escape? By the blood of the Lamb. Everyone in Egypt, firstborn, everyone dying except those under the shelter of the blood. And God saved them unto Himself. We don't obey to get blessed. We were blessed, therefore we obey. And we always remember that before that commandment to put the law of God on the doorpost, there was the blood of the Lamb on that doorpost. And that's why there's love and gratitude rather than fear and loathing in our hearts. And that's why as we stand on the boundary, the ancient words, here, our God is one. You love Him with all your heart and soul and strength. And you tell the story to your children. And that's the story you tell your own heart. And that's what Paul was trying to get across to a church in Corinth when they, they became so messed up in the way that they related to one another that that there were, there were literally uh, illness that had fallen upon that church and there were literally those that, 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 that were dying. And Paul said, I, I need to remind you of something. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and gave thanks and broke it and said, Take this is my body. Eat. And what? In remembrance of me. When you eat this bread, remember. And then taking the cup after supper also and giving thanks. This cup is the blood of the new covenant which is given for you. When you drink it, do that in remembrance of me. One of the most vital things that you can do every single day is to remind yourself of the story of the Gospel. Before you go out each day and find your toes on that border, on that boundary, and you face those challenges of the day to remind yourself from God's Word in your own personal history of how God has come through, shining through the clouds into your life and has saved you and blessed you and formed you 
and provided for you and taken care of you and has not saved you from a, 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 a pain-filled life at times and, and, and saved you from the consequences of, of, of bad mistakes, but has saved you eternally from your sins in order to put His Spirit in you and to cause to flourish in your life and to thrive like the Garden of Eden, the flowers of peace and joy. You remember. You remember. You remember what God has done. And then when we come together as a family, as a, on the first day of the week, as the body of Christ, we're not just eating the Lord's continental breakfast. We remember. A body was given in order for me to get a new body. An imperishable resurrection body one day. And that blood was shed in order for me to have life everlasting. And Paul says, according to Jesus, every time we do that, it's in remembrance. It's in remembrance of His sacrifice on the cross. And when we do that, even though we're remembering and doing it in remembrance, we're also proclaiming, we're telling the story until the day He comes back. Perhaps you've never trusted God like that. And perhaps tonight you want to begin. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If there is a way that we can minister to you tonight, come down and talk to these shepherds. As Ben leads us in the song of praise, let's stand and praise God together. The sweet voice of Jesus say, Come unto me, I am the way. Oh, 